Good morning. Good to have you here this morning. I'm going to use the whiteboard again. We're continuing our series on perspectives, and we're looking at how the way we look at things will affect how we live. We talked about how our belief in God can change the direction of our life, how how we think about worship can have a dramatic effect on how we live, what church is supposed to be, how it is not a house that you go to, but it's a movement that Christ has started that we get to be a part of. We've been now getting into a place where it starts to deal with how we live our lives in connection with other people. Last week, we talked about how we see people affects how we act towards them. And we're going to kind of build on top of that because today what we're going to talk about is how do we talk to people. And I'm talking about in the terms of how do we talk to people about our faith, the things that are important to us. How do we share these things with people in a way that uh, is effective? Because how we see people is going to affect how we share with people. If you think people are bad, like we talked about last time, and when I talk about bad, I mean they're depraved, people are uh, evil, and they're, this would be kind of your definition of sin it's going to be that people are bad and so because you see them in this way where they're bad it's going to bring this attitude of judgment which is what we see in Luke 18:11 where Jesus talks about the story of a, a Pharisee who goes into the temple and next to him is a tax collector and the Pharisee is praying and he says God I thank you that I'm not like other people I'm not like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. And since taxes are in the news these days, or IRS, I'm not like an IRS agent, okay? There's this attitude of judgment towards people that you see them as less than. If you see people as bad, inherently evil, as depraved, then your attitude towards them can be much like that of a Pharisee, where you look down upon them. And so your definition of sin is this. They're bad, they're depraved, they're evil, they're sinners. And then we talked about how Jesus looks at people, and he looks at people as lost. And so when you look at someone as lost, you have compassion you have compassion towards them. And we see Jesus' illustration, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Jesus still saw them as sinful, but his definition or viewpoint of sinful was that of compassionate, lost. They were harassed. They were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he goes on to say, Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field, which brings us into play. We're his workers. And so we need to make sure that we have the right perspective so that we can have the right conversation. Because if we have the wrong perspective, if in our minds people should be demeaned, then our conversation is going to be demeaning. But if we have a perspective that people 
are harassed and helpless and lost, then it's going to change the dialogue. It's going to affect the spirit of the conversation to one that is going to be more in line with what is actually happening in the heart of the individual. And so we need to be careful that our conversation is not abrasive, that we are wise in how we communicate. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Just think about that. When you're talking about people who are outside of the faith, let your conversation always be full of grace. Seasoned with salt. I like salt. Everything should have salt. Except maybe cookies. My daughter made cookies with salt once. It was when she was just learning. Instead of sugar, it was salt. They didn't come out so well. But otherwise, it should be seasoned with salt. You know, if you have macaroni and cheese, you need salt and some pepper. So that you may know how to answer everyone. And and so our conversation is to be seasoned so that it is inviting. It's to be full of grace. Why is it to be full of grace? Because we see people compassionately. And so grace is a part of our dialogue because people are helpless, they're harassed, they're they're lost, they're broken. And our definition of sin falls into this camp, family camp, get it? This camp and not this camp. Paul, at the end of his life, said he was the chief of sinners. So Paul still identified himself in this term, but the term did not come across as one of judgmental, of looking down. His term was one of grace. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Now, if you've been coming to Genesis for a while, I've probably spoke on Acts 17 a hundred times in the last 200 times that I've talked. It's one of my favorite passages because I feel it is just profound in what Paul does here. And a little bit of leeway into it, all the way back in Acts chapter 14, we see Paul and Barnabas are going out trying to to bring this gospel, this good news, this message about who Jesus is, and they start going into the Gentile world. They go to Iconium, they go to Lystra and Derbe, and, and there they do some miraculous things, and so the people try and take them and raise them up to be gods. And Paul and Barnabas says, no, they tear their clothes, and we're just men, don't do this thing. And so there's this shift that is taking place in the history of this movement where it was predominantly at one point among the Jewish people and now it's starting to overflow into the Gentile world. And so they're having to deal with these people who have no concept of the Hebrew tradition, the Hebrew scriptures and laws. And so in chapter 15... Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and they have a council and they say, what are we going to do about these Gentiles? 
They are being filled with the Spirit just like the Jews. God is working in their hearts just like he is in ours. And some people were saying, well, we need them to follow the law like we follow the law. We need them to adhere to the same commandments that we adhere to. And Paul, thank God, pushes and says, why would we put on them a burden that we ourselves could not bear? And they come to this conclusion. We're not going to require anything from them except they abstain from fornication, sexual lewdness, and meats that are strangled. And that has to do with pagan worship. And so we're going to keep them just responsible in sexual acts and then in their worship not to be involved with the pagan acts. And that was it. They didn't even require them to accept the Hebrew scriptures, which is pretty heavy. And so there is this change, and we see in chapter 14 of Acts, that Paul and Barnabas, as they dialogue with the Gentiles, it's a total different conversation than they've been having with the Jewish people. And in chapter 17, starting at verse 16, we see Paul go to the epicenter of the known world at that time in Greece, and it's there in Athens. And so starting at verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Interesting, right? And to them, his gods were foreign. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening about the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now remember what Paul said, Let your speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt. We know that this place is given to idolatry. Paul did not come and say, the commandments of God are, you shall not have any other gods before me. Instead, he says, Athens, I see you're very religious. You see what he's doing? He's full of grace. He's seasoned with salt. Verse 22, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And so he saw this 
statue to the unknown God because they wanted to make sure they had all their bases covered. Well, if there's a God we don't know, let's make a statue and we can worship the one we don't know. And Paul says, well, we're going to help you to know this one that you don't know. I'm here to make this God known to you. And, And so he's starting at a place where they live. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul. Who did they become followers of? Paul. Just want you to know that. And believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. What Paul does here is a template for what we need to keep in mind when we talk to people. It's a perspective that we need to maintain. One that is full of grace, seasoned with salt, one that is inviting, one that talks to people where they are at. In this whole dialogue, Paul does not use the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? Why wouldn't he use the Word of God? I mean, doesn't it say that every word that goes back will not return void? He should have just quoted them Scripture. It wasn't required for them to believe the Old Testament Scripture, to believe in Jesus. Now, if you want to believe in Jesus, you'll get a whole lot of information through the Scriptures. And so what happens is when you start to hunger after this man, Jesus, who, who came and died for him, and you want to find out about him, you'll be like Philip, the Ethiopian uh, eunuch, you know, that counselor. He says, where can I find out more about this? What does this mean? And now he takes him to the Scriptures to help reveal information. But you see, we have to remember what is important. What are we trying to do? Are we trying to prove that people are wrong? And so we need to prove that we are right? 
or are we trying to show them the grace that leads them to God? Let me just give you an idea, something, and how you would react to this. Because this is something that we maybe have heard similar things said. What would happen if I came up to you and I said, the Quran says it, I believe it, and that settles it? What kind of dialogue do you think we're going to have? Do you think it's going to be argumentative? Probably. I can see some of you getting red-faced. How dare you say that right here? But what happens when we say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it? What kind of conversation are we having? Where do we fit in the perspective? Are, are we filled with grace leading to God? Or are we telling people, this is the right way, and if you don't believe the right way, then you're going the wrong way? See, Paul didn't go up to the Athens and say, the Hebrew Scriptures are the true revelation of God, and you need to believe the Hebrew Scriptures. No, he went to them and he started with their idolatry and he said, I see you're very religious. He knew where they were mentally. He knew where they were philosophically. He knew where they were religiously. So he began a conversation where they were. Not where he wanted them to be. And if we don't understand this, we will have a conversation with ourself. And the others will listen to us and say, I don't believe that. And so changing the way we speak helps us to be more effective because our goal is to connect people to God through the person of Jesus. And so we want people to know who Jesus is so that they can get to God. Our purpose is the grace of God through the person of Jesus that leads them to the knowledge of who God is. That is our goal. If we don't have that perspective and our goal becomes about proving to them that we are right, then our conversation will become circular and it will become self-focused. And, and so we'll say things like, the Bible says, first of all, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the Bible and the development. The Bible is not one book. The Bible is 66 different books written by over 40 authors spanning a period of 1,500 years, all talking about a single event, God's dealing with mankind. You see, I think that is miraculous. The idea of one book, I think, is actually taking away the miraculous nature of what the Scriptures are. And, and so what, what's more effective if you say, the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead? And then someone says, well, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Do you want to accept the Lord? <laughs> no, I'm good, thanks. But what if instead of saying, the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, what if you say, you know, Matthew, who was a tax collector, wrote about Jesus being crucified and him seeing him 
rise again from the dead. Not only Matthew, but Luke, who was a physician, also followed with the disciples and wrote about Jesus' death and resurrection as he inquired and investigated these things, so much so that he left his practice as a doctor and became a church planter with the Apostle Paul. We're changing the blinds there. Not good. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Thank you. I was worried about those. Or, or what if we said, you know, Mark heard from Peter, who was also one of Jesus' disciples. Peter, who at one point denied Jesus and later was crucified for his belief that Jesus was indeed alive. You see, now... I've talked about the resurrection, but I've talked about it in a way that is connected to the people who wrote it. You see, when this Christians say, well, who wrote the Bible? And you say, God wrote the Bible. A person who is not of faith thinks, what does that mean? I used to think, what does that mean? I had visions of a giant hand from the cloud writing things down. But when we say God inspired men to write the Bible... Okay, men I I can identify with because that's what most people who aren't of faith believe that the scriptures were written by men. We believe that too. We start where they believe and then we give the account, which is more effective because what we're trying to do is get them to understand God's grace through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not necessary that a person believe the infallibility of the Scripture first before they can accept Jesus. Like I said, once we acknowledge Jesus, there is a hunger for Him that is insatiable, and the Scriptures are the only thing that will fill that hunger. And so the Scriptures become the food that nurtures our desire to know more. But Paul didn't start with the Hebrew text. He actually started where they were. Not only did he start where they were, he quoted their poets, their philosophers. He knew their writings. Today, many people who are followers of Christ have no idea of the conversation that is taking place outside of the church. They are surrounded with a conversation that is only about themselves and about the things that they believe. And when they engage someone, it's like they cannot relate. In 2008, there was a movie called Lord, Save Us From Your Followers. It was a Dan Merchant wrote it or produced it or directed it. I think he did it all. And... I got a small clip that we're going to show of that that just talks about how many times what will happen is the Christians will be in a conversation by themselves and unable to effectively communicate or connect to those who are outside of their faith. And so it's a short little three-minute or so video that they're going to show any moment. Now... I love the reaction. Oh, that's terrible. The reason I show this, I'm not trying to bash Christians, but I am trying to wake us up 
so that we can actually have conversations that matter and make a difference. That we would get out of our boxes and understand the points of view that the other people have so that we can engage in a conversation. You see, Paul was able to use their own writings, their own beliefs, and present to them the truth. Because he knew that God was already speaking to them. In him, we live and move and have our being. As your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, there is this hint of truth that is there already because God is there already. God has placed people in different parts of the world, set boundaries so that they might actually come to know him. That God has postured everything so that his voice could be heard in the human soul. And if you don't understand that, your conversation will treat people like they are less than. Like they don't hear God's voice. You can't hear God's voice. You're not a follower of Christ. Well, what do you do with the Magi who followed the star and followed and found Christ? What, what do you do with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the Roman centurion who sent for Peter because God appeared to him in a dream? What do you do with Naaman, the Syrian commander-in-chief who, who went and was healed of leprosy? What, what do you do with all these people who encountered God because God was speaking to them? And, and so instead of talking to people and talking down to them or talking like, we know what's right, you know what's wrong, actually listening to what they have to say and having an understanding of those things so that we can have intelligent conversations like Paul did. That means getting out of our box. That means maybe reading some things that they read. That might mean listening to some things that they listen to. That might mean watching some things that they watch. Now, everything we do has to be monitored by the Spirit of God in us so that we are still living true to who He is and who we want to be to represent Him. But there is opportunity everywhere. Because people are hungry for truth. People are very, quote, spiritual. They use that term a lot. What does that mean? And how can that term connect us to them in a conversation that will help show them the grace of God through the person of Jesus? How can we have conversation that is founded on things that they can understand and connect to that will help us connect them to Jesus. Because if we're serious about creating an environment, that, then we want to remove the obstacles of faith. And we want to remember the things that are important and focus on those things and allow the conversation to develop. I, I had... A, a, an incident where I was with a pastor from another church a number of years ago, and we were talking to these people who weren't believers in Christ, and he started having this conversation with this one young man, and we were in a dorm room in Wales, and we were talking, and 
the pastor said, well, you know, the Bible says, and he went on to quote a scripture, and the guy said, well, I don't believe in the Bible. And then the pastor said, oh, well, you know, the Bible, we can prove that it's right because, you know, we have this documentation and we have this evidence that proves that the Bible is right. And then the guy said, well, you know, I believe in evolution. He goes, oh, well, you know, creation here, you know, an evolution. And he took rabbit trails through every time the guy would say something, he would just boom, boom, boom. And I was just like, where are we going? Where is this conversation going? Do you have to disprove everything he believes in? Or can you still have a conversation with him about the things that are there already? This same young man, a few years later, I'm dialoguing with him on Facebook. And he says, Sam, I can't believe these Christians. And he he cites these scriptures that he sees as contradictions and problems. And, And this guy, he used to have long dreads and I'm... You know, he was kind of a pothead. And one day there was some street preacher in Wales that was down the street and just started chewing him out, saying he was going to hell because he smoked marijuana and did this and this and this. And I remember him saying, Sam, what's with these people? You know, what about this? What about this? And he just started trying to to show, show all these things that he didn't believe and didn't like about the Bible. And instead of trying to prove him all these things that were taking place in the Bible, there was something else that was going on. And I just told him, I said, you know what? I know a lot of the problems you have, and I have those same problems. A lot of the things that you see that are hypocritical, I see as hypocritical as well. You know, and I'm not here to try and prove you wrong, but I do believe that God does care about you right where you're at and who you are. And all of a sudden, there was this whole change in the conversation. And it just said, Sam, you've always been good to me. Why aren't there more Christians like you? And I was touched, and I'm not saying this because, yeah, why aren't there? I wonder the same thing myself, you know. The point is, I saw what was going on with him and the hurt that he's experienced to people who have spoken to him, judged him, see themselves as better, see him as depraved, and don't recognize that God is still speaking into his heart. And so their conversation belittles him. And what do you do when you are a person who hears the voice of God and then a person who's supposed to represent God tells you you don't hear anything? What do you do? What if someone would have went to the Magi and said, you guys can't be following the star to the Messiah because you worship pagan gods. You're idolaters. You worship the stars. I'm sorry. You cannot hear from God. You need to go back. We'll find him our own way. Thank you. What would happen if you try and squash the voice of God that is speaking into the hearts of people? And you see, in Acts 17, Paul says, you're religious. Why? Because God has brought you here at this time to speak these words. Oh yeah, there was a time when he allowed that ignorance to go and not be checked, but now is the time. Now his voice is becoming clearer. And you've heard it in your poets, you've heard it in your own philosophers. Now let me give you the voice. His name is Jesus. 
and he has verified that this is the truth by raising him from the dead. Now, some of them mocked. Some of them believed. And here's the problem. If we want to reach those who don't believe, and if we are going to communicate with those people that he mentions at the bottom, among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris. Dionysius was the name of a drunken god. And Dionysius was the name of a fertility god. When you start inviting into your community the people who are named after drunkenness and immorality, it's going to turn heads. It's going to cause conversation. And when you communicate to them, people are going to say, hey, you know, I want you to just feed me. I I want to hear the things that I already believe. And you're talking to these people now. And so our conversation is going into topics that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable or pushing the boundaries of my familiarity. And so people will want to leave so that they could go hang out with the Matthews and the Jameses, but not the Dionysiuses. I don't want my kids hanging out with her kids. Don't you know what her name means? And unless we have this conversation and this mindset, unless we are able to talk and see God speaking already, we are going to limit our conversation. And pretty soon we'll be having a conversation with ourselves. And we'll make ourselves feel really good. And we'll have our own music. Oh, we already do. And we'll have our own radio stations. Oh, we already do. We'll have our own clothing. Oh, we already do. And we'll have our own schools. Not that any of these things are wrong. But are we building a wall? Or are we building a bridge? Is our conversation hindering or is it helping? Are we extending the love and hand of God to those who are lost, having compassion because they are sinners just like we? Or are we condemning and forcing them to believe what we already believe before they can get to the next step. How we communicate and understanding this, that our conversation would be full of grace. It would be seasoned with salt. You're very religious. Your own poets have said this. And the motivation, as always, is love. Because God gave his life for them. Just like he gave his life for you. And God is speaking to them just like he has spoken to you. Oh yeah, now it's clear. Now we know the son. In the past he has spoken through the prophets and times. But now he's revealed himself through his son. Now we go to the scriptures and we devour them. Because they give us glimpses and understanding of the one we love, the one who loves us. But let's remember what's important. And let's have a conversation with people in a way that shows God's love 
that is respectful, full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we can connect them to God through the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I think of how many times I have spoken to people and have been so abrasive, so condemning, so judgmental, where I have done more harm than good in trying to bring someone to you. And Lord, no one does well when they are belittled. No one accepts well harsh rebuke or condemnation or judgment. No one likes these things. Lord, there are hard things that need to be said. There are hard truths that need to be brought to bear, but there is a way to do it. And may we have your heart as we have these conversations. May we care enough to know where people are at if we are going to talk with them. May we get outside of ourselves and our comfort and our own world to be able to engage them in theirs. May we see ourselves the way you see us, as the workers that are doing the harvest, the laborers to to do the work, missionaries here in our own community with the people at our work, the people at our school, the people in our family. May we care enough to know what they believe so that we can help them to know you. And I pray we would keep this perspective, God, in how we talk to people, that we would never be demeaning, that we would never be condemning. Jesus, you said you did not come into this world to judge. Lord, we stand judged already. We don't need more judgment. What we need is rescue. Lord, these people are helpless. They're harassed. They're sheep that need a shepherd. May we be a shepherd for them. Lead them to you, the good shepherd. Lord, I pray and ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.